Christine. And I'm Alan. And we're two pastors with PhDs needing an outlet for all that knowledge rolling around in our heads. So we put our heads together and came up with this podcast. Each week we will discuss a scripture passage from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm going to interview Alan about his biblical knowledge. And I'm going to interview Christy about her amazing knowledge of the Reformation. And then we're going to talk together about the implications for today. Our hope is that between the two of us, we'll come up with some information that will help you with your sermon planning each week. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. everybody and welcome to our podcast listen to the word today uh today we're going to be talking about um paying the the taxes the story of um of the gold coin um going to caesar or not and um we're going to be looking at this as through matthew 22 verses 15 through 22 so this is a a well-known a well-known story um a well-known historical incident as we understand it that is recorded in all the gospels um except for maybe john um and uh in it um i think we need to understand the setting here of when the pharisees and herodians come to jesus and they try to try to corner him and um um it isn't all all of these synoptic gospels and yet why is this unique in matthew what is the setting for this well, that's a good question. Um, it's interesting that if, if you look at uh, the parallels, um, Matthew is pulling together episodes that uh, Luke in particular has in other places. Now, there, there is a, a basic outline of these, thing, of these events that happened or these, this, this, this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders and the political leaders with the Herodians. But um, it's, I think it's pretty clear that when you start with, with Matthew 21 and the question of the authority and you go through chapter 22 and all the different parables that we've looked at, and then in chapter 23 is the conclusion with all these just terrible woes on the Jewish religious leaders. This is something that Matthew has put together. Uh, and I think Matthew is really wanting to um, portray the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And if we think about the setting for Matthew's community that he was writing to, again, these were Jewish Christians who were probably under fire from the local Jewish religious leaders uh, of their communities. And I think what, what Matthew's trying to do is, is present Jesus as the authority and sort of delegitimate or delegitimize the authority of the local religious leaders because they're 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 torn you know because the 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 authority figures they've looked up to are now are now condemning them for following a different way and and for abandoning you know uh the synagogue and or having you know and they've been cast out of the synagogue perhaps so there's this there's this tension that's that's behind this and i think matthew I think that's what Matthew's doing. So, yeah, Matthew puts it into this context. It allows mm-hmm. us to see this even better. I think, you know, when, when I read this, and I think when a lot of people read it the first time, they maybe are not aware of this 
the, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians, yeah. and we seem to laugh and think, or we seem to think, oh, that's we don't we don't pull apart. How that's really a mm. that's really a significant thing. It's very those are enemies. <laughs> they were they were diametrically opposed. Um, the Pharisees were devoted to keeping the Torah of God, and they were offended by any kind of political compromise with the Romans. The Herodians, by definition, were <laughs> basically Roman. Uh, Patsies, in yeah. a sense. I mean, they, they, had, they had sold their souls. They may have been Jewish people, but they had sold their souls to the Romans for the sake of power and money and influence, you know. And so there was, they had nothing in common except that they saw Jesus they, as a it's threat. It's a threat. Yes, yes, yes. And so what a strange, kind of what a strange um, um, partnership that they've come up with here. Was, and I think that's a, interesting. I, yeah. I, think that, I think that the original audience would have noticed this, I think think that Matthew's community would have noticed this. They would have known, oh, Herodians and Pharisees, they don't have anything to do with no, each other. No, these are people that don't, yeah. uh, don't so, aren't in the same circles. So we get a feel that, that there's some kind of setup going on from the very start. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Jesus is being set up by these people. Right. And I think that continues because then when they say to him, we know that you're sincere. <laughs> you teach the way of God truly. Well, you know, I'm sorry. No Jewish religious leaders and or political leaders believed that Jesus, you know, taught the way of God truly. They believed he taught the way of God falsely, and they taught right. the way of God truly. Right. And that was the whole point. That was their whole <laughs> problem with Jesus. So, there's again, we, we get the idea that this is a total setup. You would kind of wish, and this is a little bit off of our topic, but you kind of wish you knew the conversation between the Herodians and the Pharisees right. as they came to Jesus yeah, in this, you know? you want to be in the room where it happened, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what, how did this little deal go on? Right. But it, I guess not knowing that just speaks of all kinds of corruption. Right, know? it does. It does. And I think that's part of the part of the challenge here. Right, know? right. <laughs> um, so I want to pull out um, a little bit... Um, why this this discussion here of of the nature of the denarius and that this is a Roman coin, um, mm-hmm. um, and 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 what that what that meant in the context of of the of the Judea um, and and the expectations. Well, um, um, the Jewish people were an occupied people. They were conquered people. They were a part of the Roman Empire, and uh, wherever the Roman legions held power. Those folks had to pay taxes to the Roman Empire. Uh, it's kind of it was it's kind of a standard practice in that day when an army came in and conquered you, you had to pay taxes to pay for the war. <laughs> and um, so yeah, I mean they were required to pay they they had to pay all kinds of taxes, but it was basically kind of a poll tax, almost like mm-hmm. a almost like a, a toll that everybody had to pay to enter say Jerusalem and to leave you know maybe not to leave but you know it was a transit tax in a sense and and um, everybody had to pay it and uh, they had other taxes to pay as well but they they basically right. the Romans this is how Roman the Roman Empire right. and other empires paid for their wars was by collecting taxes from, absolutely from conquered peoples of course the Romans would probably say that in some way shape or form of course with with the Herodians that this money has gone back to support them. And of course we know they have built the various Caesarea and these various cities um, that sometimes the Jews can benefit from. So it's this interesting, um, 
It's an interesting space. Of, I doubt uh, that there'd be too many people who saw it positively. Yeah, well, I don't think so. Uh, probably, <laughs> probably not. Well, really, the Herodians probably did. Right, yeah. but it really galled most of the people yeah, to have to pay so. that tax to the Romans. Right, right, uh, right. It, and, and, and those who those who were involved in collecting the tax were seen as just extreme traitors. They had betrayed Absolutely. their people completely. Right, right, they were right. viewed as corrupt. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but it's it is interesting. I, I, again, I'm kind of going back to where it was. So it's really interesting that those who did support that, you know, the the, the probably a rich upper class that mm-hmm. that had partnered who with benefited. They, right. they may have been some of right. the tax farmers themselves. Well, of course, historically, you know, when there was at one point Judea was a tribute state, mm-hmm. and then and actually it gets taken over by the Roman emperors proper. So there's this loss of um, independence that mm-hmm. came in with this, um, even though they're paying they're paying taxes both times. Right. Um, so kind of an kind of an interesting, but this is yet another piece of we've really lost any sense of an sure. independent state. Sure. I think is kind of interesting to, to put in there, but. Um, um, so, moving through the moving through the scripture here, um, um, why is Jesus's response so? I mean, is it that he didn't fall into the trap, and so right. why is this so unique or so surprising? Or what what do we get from that? Well, I think you know. Again, going back to the situation, if we had been in the room where it happened, you know. You have these natural enemies, Pharisees and Herodians, and they're trying to find a way to trap Jesus, and they've come upon paying taxes. Because any devout Jewish person found that abhorrent. But to, to, for Jesus to come out and say, no, it's not consistent with, the God, with God's law for you to pay tax, would have been political suicide. Yep, political I mean, suicide. he would have yep. been. That would. Have, he. I mean, <laughs> the, the 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 soldiers would have marched in and arrested him for sedition. You know, right. that would have just been the end of it. So they thought they had him. You know, on the horns of an impossible dilemma. They thought that there was no way he would. I, I can just. I can just see the looks on their faces as they're asking this question. We know that you don't show deference to any man, and the implication is even to Caesar. Even to Caesar. Uh, is it lawful for us to pay taxes or not? You know, and they. They just. They know. They just know that they've got him, and he's stuck, and he's. There's no way he's going to get out of this trap, and. Um, um, you know, um, it's interesting because Matthew clues us in that Jesus uh, perceives their deception, and and actually the word yeah. is Jesus. Jesus um, uh, perceived their malice, or it's literally the word their evil. And, and I don't think it took any kind of supernatural powers to catch on to that because they were they were so obvious i think the <laughs> yeah. fact that this pharisees and herodians the fact that they're saying we know you know they come to right him with this. right right and this is kind of a this is kind of a, a literary feature this um i agree uh, uh, yeah. setting someone up like right this. we right. know that you teach the truth of god um and so <laughs> uh, you know D- jesus simply says you hypocrites why are you why are you testing me you know <laughs> and he and and that's again sort of a thematic thing in Matthew as well is because Jesus in Matthew's gospel particularly Jesus uh, confronts the 
uh, religious and political leaders, this, the powers that be of the Jewish world in that day with their hypocrisy. They, you know, they made an outward show of being all pious, but inwardly they were really all about, you know, their own greed, their own power, you know, and, and that was what it was all about. So, you know, Jesus, it's, it's really kind of brilliant what Jesus says, you know, show me the denarius. And the denarius was the Roman coin. Um, and, you know, minting coins was kind of a way, it was another way of legitimating your rule. If, you had, if the coins had your image on it, then you really were the, the ruler of that era. So like even client kings right. of, that, of, had, of the Jewish had the states coins. had coins mm-hmm. minted. And it was a way of legitimating their rule. So it's kind of ironic what Jesus does. He says, show me the coin. And, you know, they, they bring out a denarius, which some people might have said in the past, and I don't know that this is true or not, but some people have said that even for a Pharisee to even carry a denarius would have been, <laughs> you know, a sign of their hypocrisy. Interesting. Because some yeah. of them wouldn't even use that right, money. Right, because they would it would be the Jewish so, shekel. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so tainted. Yeah, it would be tainted. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was filthy lucre. Yeah. <laughs> but... You know, and so he he just simply asks, you know, whose image is on the coin? Well, Caesar's. Well, okay, since Caesar's image is on the coin, it must belong to Caesar. Give it, give give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but then give to God right. what belongs to God. And you know, everyone would have known what the answer to that question was. You know. What God asks is that we love God with all our heart mm. and mind and soul. In other words, right. yeah, this this right. coin that, that Caesar mended, it belongs to him anyway. Give it back to him. Right. But you give to God what is right. God's due. And that's a much greater demand than taxes. <laughs> well, I was reading about this. I was I was thinking about I was thinking about that in terms of, you know, the Roman state also expected um, expected the clients as well as anybody under the Roman Empire to give, to give, um, to pray to the Roman gods. Sure. So, what an interesting piece here is. No, you know, by by paying this, you're just giving that back. You aren't right. giving your you aren't giving your allegiance. It's not a sign of loyalty. Um, yeah, it's not a yeah. sign of, of dedication or devotion. You know, yeah, it's just a coin. Give it give it back to the person who minted it in the first place. Yeah. But. Give God what God right. requires, which is your whole life. And yeah, yeah, and I think that's I think it's interesting, and I think it also reflects. And we didn't talk, but I think that also reflects the kingdom of God, which we've been spending so much time mm. about. Is what is that? Is it the buildings that are built, or is it the? It's the yeah. it's the it's it's God's reign and what God is doing in this world exactly for the sake of justice, peace, and freedom. And it's a different way of. It really is. I mean, even a broader commentary on. When you think about the Jewish state, and, and of course, remember what the, our temple now has just been destroyed, and so we're in this, or not well, yet. It, well, it, Maybe. De- it depends on which situation right. you're looking at. Right. In Jesus' time, not. He was at the temple. What? Right, right, right. In Matthew's, Matthew's time, time. Yes, in Matthew's yes, time, yes, right. Possibly so. Possibly yeah. that could have been yeah. construed as a commentary about, too. Yeah. Again, yeah. You're putting all your, all your emphasis on this physical physical the beautiful buildings the beautiful buildings instead of maybe um what god has called us to be so anyway yeah i think it has a lot more depth 
I think this passage has a lot more depth to it than maybe people give it. Yeah, um, this is not just about separation of church and state. This is about, um, um, you know, this was a political setup for Jesus. These were two groups that were trying to to let Jesus hang himself, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he saw through it and... He had the wisdom to be able to say, okay, yeah, give the coin back to Caesar, but you give to God what God demands, and which was the heart of the Torah anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right, and, right. And so... Again, the fulfillment of that law, yes, what the law is meant to be. Yep. Yes, yep. yes. And so again, I, you know, coming back to the, the original point is that, you know, in this whole setting of Matthew's gospel, you, you, have these, you have these episodes where the Jewish leaders keep coming to Jesus and he keeps foiling their efforts to, to embarrass him or humiliate him or catch him in a trap. And it's kind of almost, it gets almost comical because it's like, okay, who's next? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, but it's, it's, yeah, it's awesome, actually. Yeah. Think about yeah. who Jesus is. And, right. And, and that, just, I think that's, the, that's what Matthew wanted to do was he wanted to try to bolster the beleaguered Jewish Christians who were under fire from local Jewish religious leaders by, by reinforcing you know their allegiance to Jesus, yeah. and and pointing in this context, saying, you know, hey, this is you're giving your allegiance to God. You're not just, you know, right. This yeah. is not just a some competing sect here. Good. Yeah. Okay, we're back, and uh, I'm going to uh, chat with Christy a bit about uh, how the Reformers uh, looked at this passage. And so, Christy, how did the Reformers um, understand this passage? Sure. This passage for the Reformers is basically that the introduction to the division between, well, the division between the two kingdoms, if you will, not division between church and state, but the two kingdoms, that there's this secular world that rules the everyday things that people do that, 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 that governs us as people. And then there's the spiritual world, that world of grace. And Luther was one of the first ones to kind of delineate that. We also, I should say, that goes way back to Augustine, of course. I was going to say, did they get that from Augustine? Yeah, right. because the city of God versus the exactly. city of, Is it the city of men or what is it? Yeah, yeah. and then it, we move um and then that kind of is rekindled, if you will, within the Reformation folks. So that's and 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 defined under under Luther and Calvin. So this really becomes just a bit of a mouthpiece for that concept. And mm-hmm. and really, all the reformers I read, and let's just say the main, the magisterial folks, were were referencing it in this context. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> I say that you always have to remember there were the radicals who absolutely. Um, did not think there should be any any devotion to state in any way, shape, or form, which would have included paying taxes. So they they kind of go off on their own wow. own space with this, um, and uh, uh, it, anyway, it, it, I think that's an interesting an interesting shift. But at least the mainstream folks, this is all very very clear for these two this two kingdom concept. It's funny because as I think both about the magisterial reformers and their two kingdom concept and the and the radical reformers in terms of taking this as you shouldn't pay taxes, it's like they both miss the point. They do, they do, and I think part of the I think part of the trap with that too is that they aren't thinking in a context of kind of a 
a, a modern, even postmodern interpretation. They, these are pre-modern folks, and mm-hmm. they're taking it pretty literally. It, it, and we know we've talked before about how Calvin collapses all of the gospels into one. He's looking right. at this one gospel vision. So he's not th- pulling apart thinking, well, how is Matthew putting this into the context of the world in which he was, or or Luke, or Mark? So it becomes one basic story. That's and not even a question that, that, that he's asking. How do, how, you know, how do the different gospel writers interpret this? It's not, yeah, it's not a question on the table. So it comes comes forth and, oh, wow, this is a really clear example. And it it's, it, it's, pretty clear they all kind of say the same thing about it um which i think is really interesting uh in terms of just the pulling apart this parable they, they do tend to go back um and look at old testament um tribute uh which uh as as being an example of of paying of paying taxes but they don't they don't really bring that into a modern sense and they aren't able to to separate that kind of tribute money versus the kind of contemporary uh, tax paying to the, the Roman governor. So it's an interesting um, it's an interesting attempt, but I think it I think it's pretty shallow. It sounds like they came to this passage with an agenda that they were pursuing. I don't think they would say no, that in, this, in this case. I mean I, I don't think they would say that. I think they would this would be so clear for them on how to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I'm saying. I, mm-hmm. I think, I think, at least that's what I'm suggesting. I think that it sounds to me like the 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 the, the question of what is the relationship between the state and the church was something that was very central to the reformers, and so they read this into this passage, which seems ready made. Render unto Caesar what is right. Caesar's, and render unto God what is right. God. That seems ready made for addressing that issue. You know, I think. I think what's interesting too is, and and I'm guilty of this as well. We, we tend to think about, you know, coming into this as Americans' division of church and state. If you grew up in the United States, that's part of how you function. That is not how these folks functioned no. in terms of that the state and the the religion always always went together. And some of the folks I've been reading here say, look, Calvin Calvin really wasn't even spending that much time thinking about the state in terms of 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 how things are organized. He's really thinking about the theology and how the state comes under it. And so I think when you're thinking here is how is God, especially with Calvin, sovereign over all, and how does the state fit into that? Mm. Not so much that it functions as an old-fashioned theocracy, but but thinking of how is the church set up and how are we set up to function in that, and then how does the state kind of roll out of being um, able to govern the temporal world um so again that break off but god always at the top not not a not the complete I separation i see which so it's more like where where, where does the state find its proper role yeah uh, in respect exactly to the church? exactly where does the state find its proper role in the church and and i think calvin sometimes been misread as being this great political thinker in terms of the impact on the united states government which we think it does, but his his aim was really thinking about the church mm-hmm. um, as a whole, mm-hmm. not not trying to think about how to restructure government. However, <laughs> jump 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 jump, as things worked out in Geneva, there was still very much a sense that a good state was one that that is functioning under this window. And I think it's fair to say, in in in, in Calvin, there's some back and forth, you mm-hmm. know, between um, the good the state following under what God says and, and being, you know, paying your taxes to the state, but 
if it's if it's there's tyranny, then there's a duty for for good Christians to overthrow the state. So yeah. he's kind of back and forth uh. that way. Well, yeah, I was going to I was going to ask because it, I guess the typical idea is that Geneva under Calvin was a theocracy essentially. Yeah. And yeah. and so it makes me makes me, you know, I think about the Herodians and the Pharisees and how politics makes strange bedfellows as we say. Um, I I'm, I'm not really fond of that analogy, but I mean the whole <laughs> point is, you know, that 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 political agenda can bring people together across opposite spectrums. And, and throughout history, we can see how church leaders have done that, how they've sidled up to, to the political powers that be of the day, mm-hmm. or they've assumed the powers, uh, the political powers, and what that does to the church, you know? Right, so how, right. How, that how affect, is that balance? How, how did that affect, how did that affect the reformers? I mean, was, was, was Geneva a, a theocracy under Calvin? I mean, I think it functioned like one, but I don't think Calvin would would see it that way mm. unnecessarily. And I, I actually pulled this out. This is from his commentaries, these, these joint commentaries on this passage, but um, I think this is interesting. We must therefore attend to this distinction that while the Lord wishes to be the only lawgiver for governing souls, the role for worshiping him must not be sought from any other source than from his own word, and that we ought to abide by only and pure worship which is there enjoined, but that the power of the sword, the laws, and the decisions of tribunals do not hinder the worship of God from remaining entire among us. So it sounds like it's limiting the power of the state. It is limiting it as... yeah. <laughs> Yes, is 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 the state should be working and functioning under God, and but perhaps also to what extent did Calvin pick up the sword? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Luther is considered to be a little bit looser on on this than Calvin, and the, and the 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 prescription for the Lutheran tradition um, um, would be have have less have less impact under the actual governance, if you will. Um, then Calvin, he wasn't so closely, he didn't align himself so closely with the power of the state. Yeah, exactly. So the power of the state can, um, kind of, again, still under God, still Mm -hmm. it's the, you know, the, the ruler of the time chooses the, chooses the faith, um, piece of Augsburg, but yes, you've got, you've got this sense of they can, that can roll out any way that 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 the ruler wants it's not sure. it's not as strict so it's this interesting it's interesting jockeying and yet don't pretend that the lutheran state didn't have the lutheran tradition didn't have something i mean what's allowed to be printed what's allowed to be um what's what's allowed to be done in worship that right. all still comes under city ordinance, ordinance mm. rules so mm. it's just it's this strange time mm. um yeah so 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 there may have been a separation between the the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the state or the kingdom of the of the world, but maybe not always necessarily that uh, exclusive a separation. They sometimes right. mingled. <laughs> right, and not in not in a modern. I think I think a point I'm trying to get to is this: not in a modern context at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. 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 So. Um, you know, I. I, I as I think about this, I think about it from the standpoint of the biblical passage. And you know, you've got these, you've got these groups that were willing to compromise their principles in order to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish politically. To what extent did the reformers do that in their day? 
Well, so I think I'm going to go to Zwingli for a little bit here. But for example, in um, Zurich, it was kind of interesting because he had a clear idea about what the reform of the church should be. He was very clear about about really wiping clean a lot of the a lot of the accoutrements that the Roman Catholic tradition had right. had, and yet he worked very closely. This all still was coming under kind of the state um, the state dis- decision. So and 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 um, he seemed to understand well. This has to come very very slowly, and so he allowed for this kind of slow. A political process to go about by which the um, changes in the church would happen slowly, and of course, this offended some of his some of his colleagues. They're like, "If you believe this, right. and this is what the church right. says, this is what you need to do." And they went off, and, and they went and off, formed the Anabaptist movement. Right, right, right. They said, but but Zwingli was very, very political and very, very careful to work with the state. So. Mm tiny pieces at a time. And I think it wasn't only, and one might say, well, he was just giving in to the state, but I think he also understood that the parishioners coming in aren't going to understand when you flip-flop the church that supposedly has, you know, control of their souls for salvation, and then you tell them they're all wrong, all of a sudden, how are they going to, how are they going to adjust? So I think in his case, um, there was some kind of giving into the political establishment, but I think he did it with understanding that that that's part of how we function as a as a society as a whole you can't can't just make anarchy out of right. out of what's going on um uh luther as well you know luther <laughs> luther was careful he had he after the uh, um after the declaring that you know here i stand he uh was ushered off by none other than the state, um, by the elector, um, um, John of Saxony. And so he's, he's protected by the state. So again, he has to kind of get along and mm-hmm. with these folks who are offering him protection, who are really more interested in the idea that they could, you know, break off from Rome and the, and the heavy hand of the Holy Roman empire and do their own thing. Um, then they are probably the religious convictions, although there's probably a few pieces there, but so they, they go kind of hand in hand, but, but Luther's careful not to offend those folks that are supporting him. What would that have looked like had it been completely separated from from the state but it's not and i think that's the one of the important points is this is time when it's not a division of church and state and neither was it for rome no, back neither when was this it happened for jesus. Or, i think i think for jesus it was really kind of a pragmatic solution to a problem uh that was somewhat theological mm-hmm. you know um um yeah it's 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 not um it's not what we would like to have Rome as our overlords, but um, you know they're the powers that be. They minted the coin. Pay mm-hmm. it back to them. That's kind of a pragmatic solution. Right. Uh, but right. it's not in Jesus in Jesus' way of framing it. It's not you're not giving up. You're not selling your soul to Rome. Right. You still right. you still have your ultimate allegiance to God. It sounds like some of the reformers also kind of followed that same same pragmatic approach you, know, uh, yeah, absolutely. you have to you have to be aware of uh the powers that be you have to work within that framework but then exactly you know you can you can work toward uh kingdom uh ends you know within that setting right and i would i would argue that one of the biggest problems we have today 
is that we go back and look at this passage with this modern concept of division of church and state, and we say, oh, this this defines who we are today, without realizing that that's not how it was understood. And Je- Jesus wouldn't have had a concept of that any more than the Reformers had a concept sure. of that. Sure. That concept doesn't is a, is a modern thing, and it's become so ingrained in our minds that we take that back when we read this passage. And um, for most of the history of the church, that's just not a reality. That doesn't that doesn't make sense. Sure. Yeah. We'll save that thought. We'll pick it up when we come back. Okay. Thanks. So we're back, and uh, Christy was on a roll when we when we uh, left off uh, uh, talking about how we approach this passage from the idea that it's advocating the separation of church and state, and that really wasn't something that was part of the reality of the either Jewish, Jesus Day or, or even in the history of the church. So I want, to, I want to ask her to elaborate on that. How does that play into the way we look at this passage? Well, I mean, so one of the things I like to do is, is when we're starting podcasts, just kind of to look around kind of the, the spectrum of, of Christian tradition, and I find that but, but particularly in some of our, our more evangelical brothers and sisters that they're just going straight at this with this modern mindset, and they're like, we can apply this biblical passage to it. And um, that's absolutely how they read it. Um, so they're, they're approaching it just like the Reformers did. They, they, really, they really did. Um, um, well, yeah, they approached it the way the Reformers did without that more medieval, if you will, early modern mindset with a contemporary mindset. So they're they're missing out on kind of that interpretation of not only when it was written, but but throughout the ages until um, until now. And so I think I think it does add some confusion and um, um, uh, and to how we we need to understand maybe how this works today in our mm-hmm. in our world. Um, and I think. I think it, I think um, I, I think this issue of division of church and state has gone two different ways. One, where there is there is how, how, how do you read that? Does this mean that because of division of church and state that that churches can define themselves however they want and do whatever they want, even if it violates people's rights? That's one theory. The other is. Um, that no, really, because um, um, that we we have no say over religion at all. I mean, it's this kind of weird, mm-hmm. this weird thing. So right now, in the in the, they're talking about birth control, and and we've got businesses out there saying, "Hey, um, you you can't legislate what I believe as a business owner, what I what I choose to do with my business, and how I handle those underneath." Mm-hmm. So is that their right, mm-hmm. or vice versa? Is it the right of the people working to say? Hey, um, they can't impose their religious rights right. on me. So, right. what is that? What is that balance? Um, right. What What is the role of religion and church working together? Well, and it seems to me, as I look at uh, the contemporary church, that um, unfortunately, people I think are all too willing to take just take the passage, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's, and just sort of import their own interpretation of that as it fits 
as it suits their political exactly. views. Exactly. Yes. And so you've got some in the church who are who are advocating for a you know a stringent separation of church and state. Yes. And you have others who almost seem to want to embrace a theocratic society, and they want it to be a Christian theocratic society, uh, not just a Christian theocratic society, but a. a Whatever version of Christianity they believe, they want to impose upon society. Right. And so they both of them come at that same passage and they read their agenda into it. Exactly, and that's of course leads into all kinds of political tension and, and public arguments. And people again don't aren't seeing the broader picture. And I think that's kind of what Jesus was getting at. There is is hey god's kingdom is is different and better than this and i think when people push that aside and they really start to look at um, what that kingdom of god looks like then they begin to those political pieces weigh themselves out more obviously everyone is going to come in with a set of beliefs everyone has a theology and no matter what political spectrum they're, they're coming from i mean they, they come in with Found you can't you can't completely divide church and state or belief from how you function. It doesn't make any sense. Sure. Um, but um, likewise, you can't you can't make every control everyone to believe the exact same way. So how does that balance? Right. And I think if we're really playing in the world of the kingdom of God, if we come to our own space as as Christians, then I think we we have space for some toleration. Yeah. Um, that maybe we don't always see in sure. in those in politics. Sure. Well, and, you know, as I think about it, I think about, um, you know, a lot of people might come at this and say, Jesus had no interest in uh, worldly things. I think we've already seen that's not really the case, because in, I, in some of his parables, Jesus is very much uh, um, um, criticizing um, the powers that be and the way things operated in Jewish society and how unjust things were. And so there is a, definitely a sense of, of justice in, in Jesus' yeah. teachings. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it doesn't really seem like he's, he's willing to take on the Roman authorities head on in terms of paying taxes, which was probably a, a smart move on his on his part because that was kind of irrelevant. That wasn't the point. I think right. Jesus was saying, you know, yeah. I, mean, I think Jesus would say, yeah, honor God with your money, but honor God with your whole life, really. Right. Uh, and and what you do with your money really just needs to be an outgrowth of honoring God with your whole life, and that's the important principle. I yeah, absolutely, absolutely important. The the crux of this, which I think is sometimes sometimes overlooked. Um, so we're living in a time when, when it seems to me that even in our day, politics and the kingdom of God get very much entwined, intertwined, um, and perhaps that's of necessity. I mean, obviously, we live in a in a society where, as citizens, part of our duty, so to speak, is to obey the laws. But part of our duty as citizens is when we see something that's wrong is to dissent right. and to work right. to get those laws changed. So we have a little bit different setting. And so we have people in church, in churches across you know our society, advocating for different, <laughs> sometimes diametrically opposed Absolutely. Uh, uh, um, political uh, values. And I guess for my question is, um, how do you see that political involvement 
as a positive and how do you see it as a potential pitfall? Uh, isn't that the huge yeah. <laughs> question of the day? I think, you know, when, when you're in, obviously again, how our beliefs, our ultimate beliefs are going to impact how we are functioning, um, sure. how we, how we vote, who has, who we feel has a, a morality that fits within a context of what we believe, who can pass, pass laws that will fit with my concept of, of right. Mm -hmm. Um, and we like to think we're informed by, by our, our faith. And yet we've already said, look, we've got two different, we've got different concepts of this passage alone, you know? Um, so uh, how does, so I think, I think there's a, um, I guess coming to it, what, how, how does that, how does that play out then in, 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 in the political world as a whole? I mean, I think there's a real set, real possibility that, if indeed we, we would come into some kind of theocracy, you know, um, then you've got a problem of the state takes over and the state makes the rules. And we already decided it's not that clear. We don't agree. So does the state all of a sudden become God? And but that's not true. Now, historically, let's, let's add another piece back into our historical timeline because we have we have the church and the state kind of functioning together in this early modern period. But by the time you get right to the, right to the end of this, you get Louis the Fourteenth, and Louis the Fourteenth says, "I am the state." Mm-hmm. So you have Louis the Fourteenth who has gone another step to say, "Hey, I represent God." Right. So the divine right of kings. So that becomes a, if you will, kind of the birth of a modern concept of of complete. Willing to God, and so you don't have this kind of even gentle division that you see with Luther and even Calvin. You see, church and state are all and one, and all defined by mm-hmm. it, right? So that's another piece of the political spectrum. And of course, then you hit a little bit later, and you get, well, okay, that doesn't work. So you have to have the complete division, right? And 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 we're still running into that today. So the state can make no comments over religion. However, and then we say, but but but. We're going to protect religion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then, then, so then we run into these problems of, well, so what if, what if someone develops a new belief system, you know, um, and is that protected? Right. Is that legitimate? And right. how do we decide what's a legitimate faith claim and what is bogus? Mm-hmm. Um, well, so. and I, you know, the thing that I wonder about too is, um, Historically speaking, I think we can see in the history of the church lots of examples of when the church has turned to the state to uh, for, to empower them. You know, basically, um, the state has turned the church into a puppet for their own purposes, and the church has kind of given over its its um, I guess if you want to say its its mandate to serve the kingdom of God. Um, in favor of achieving political ends. And we see that still today. I think we see it on both sides of the spectrum, you know, that, that people are willing to, to um, y- use means to accomplish their ends that aren't necessarily consistent with the kingdom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and I, I mean, I think one of the, you know, that any means to accomplish the end attitude is, is found in the church as well. And, and so to me, I think this passage speaks to that to some extent because so you've too. got this idea that, you know, look, God's, 
God's claim on our lives is all-encompassing. Right. It's right. all-encompassing. And that is, that, is the, that is the foundation from which we live as Christians in the world. Now, we're, gonna, we're going to come to different conclusions, obviously, about what that means for our, um, our actions as citizens of this particular government, as citizens of this particular state. But um, um, that sh- it seems to me that the point of this passage is, is, is Jesus is calling us to, to make that our, our foundation. And, yeah. and I, I, I wonder if um, I worry sometimes that um, when we, and we've talked about this briefly before, but when we, when we forget about or when we adopt means that are not consistent with the kingdom, um, what, what is going? What is the outcome going to be, really? Right. And, you know, we've got all yeah. kinds of political action going on right now, and and right. people are people are on all sides about it. And um, I'm not saying it's it's I'm not saying anything negative or positive about it necessarily. I'm just saying uh, I think it it's important for us as we engage in political action to make sure that our motives right are are consistent with the kingdom that our that our means. The means by which we do that. I agree. And that the kingdom. means are, are, are a piece of it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's, I think you've really hit on the core of this and why this is so, actually so important for today. And I think it's, it goes way beyond the, the simplicity that we try to stick on it to church and state. But right. I think it really goes into, this is yet another commentary about the kingdom of God and what that means. Yeah. Um, and and the the space that we should be coming to discourse, for example, um, as we are interacting with each other, as we are hopefully finding ways to care for each other, even if we have very different political ideologies, right. how do we best care for our, the, the population and how do we best engage in dip- diplomacy overseas with other nations that reflect who we are as, as, sure. as Christians. So all those pieces, I think, are really important. Sure. How do we, how do we bring the compassion uh, the mercy, the grace of God's kingdom to bear in the political problems of our world today. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, and, and to me, I, I think I think this is really kind of the direction that Jesus is 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 pu- is pointing us in. I don't think we're, you know, I, I hope we're not reading in like some others. I mean, we talked about how did the reformers read in their own setting, or how mm-hmm. others perhaps in this day have read in their setting. I hope we're not doing that, but I I, I think that when Jesus pushes us. To give to God what is God's. I mean, that's like an underlying theme there. That you know, what God what God wants is all of life, and um, so that's the basis. That's the foundation from which we we engage in all of our lives, mm-hmm. our, our ministries, um, our our social interactions, our relationships. You know, including our our political. Um, activities as citizens of a de- democratic state. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. And I think the reason that it is used in all three gospels, I mean, obviously it's uh, important, but I think, I think they put more importance on this than we do as well in mm-hmm. terms of that. I think they're saying this is actually says a lot about Christ and a lot about Christ's um, um, purpose for our lives. And sure. So, all right. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. 
We'd like to thank Mandy Peterson for our graphic design. And Sarah Renner for her beautiful music. If you heard something that was helpful to you in your ministry, please subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you listen in. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.